So, I'm just coming through the revolving doors at the Times and the Sunday Times offices, just by London Bridge Station, and things here have really changed. There are suddenly hand sanitizers everywhere, um, the big billboards where you'd normally see front pages proudly displayed now show long lists of symptoms. This is apparently the new normal. I'm Manveen Rana and this is Stories of Our Times, a new daily podcast from The Times and The Sunday Times. Each day we'll be looking at one important story in depth and sometimes that'll be over more than one episode. After all, these are extraordinary times. The virus doesn't care about you. The virus doesn't have any animus towards you. The virus wants to reproduce. You probably won't be surprised to hear what we're focusing on this week. The whole city is locked down. You have no idea how long this will last. After a while, it's like you have no idea what you should do at home. Today, the virus. Part one, the race for a vaccine. We hear from the Times science editor and a vaccine researcher who's just had a breakthrough. That's coming up after this. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Dr. Kai Hu of Imperial College in London isn't used to doing lots of interviews. It is like very new for me and it's not odd, but like it's new. It's been three months since the outbreak began in Wuhan. Since then, Kai and his fellow vaccine researchers at Imperial have suddenly been thrust into the spotlight. And so has his former hometown in China. I'm just happened to be the person who lived in Wuhan and working in the vaccine now. <laughs> Nothing special. <laughs> when we met a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. just outside the studio, we sort of looked at each other awkwardly for a moment and didn't shake hands because that's suddenly the new normal. Is that what we should all be doing now? I think it's wise to have some precautions because we know like the virus can spread that way. I'm not sure if it's like 100% effective, but I think we should follow the NH suggestions. They know more than I do. (laughs) Are you shaking hands with anyone now? Actually, I still do. (laughs) But I wash my hands quite often. It's like an occupation-related OCD. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not surprised. When did you start to worry about it? What were you hearing when you realised this was going to be a serious problem? When they say it's, uh, the virus can be transmitted by human-human contact, that's when I, I felt it might be going really bad. 
Kai lived in the city of Wuhan for 12 years before moving to London, so he knows it well. I lived about like 12 years in Wuhan before I moved here. I have a lot of friends and ex-colleagues still working there and living there. You were actually in China when, when the outbreak happened? I went to Wuhan right before the outbreak started. And when the outbreak actually happened, I was back home with my family. I think it was one morning, one of my friends in Wuhan asked me, Oh, did you know you are so lucky you just left Wuhan? There was an outbreak. I was like shocked. I was like, really? How's that possible? What were your friends saying? At the beginning, they were like, fine, because <laughs> nobody thought it would be like this. But most of my friends, they work in the field, so they are like relatively more calm than the rest of the public, I think. So they're, they're scientists? Uh, most of them are, yes. And what was, their, what was their reaction when they heard of this virus? Most of my ex-colleagues, they worked like uh, non-stop since the discovery of this virus until now. You know, the outbreak was like during the Chinese New Year festival. Nobody had any rest at all. They were like trying to solve this problem. Wuhan was the first city in the world that went into full lockdown. Now it is better, but few weeks back, or maybe like a month back, when the outbreak was really, really bad, that was some really dark time. Most of the people, they are like self-isolated at home. You can only like go outside maybe like one people per family per day to get like just like life essentials. Other than that, everybody needs to stay at home and everybody... Uh, had no idea how long will this last and when will that get better. So it is really bad time. But now it's getting better and better. The new cases are dropping like rapidly. Besides Wuhan, most of the places people are trying to go back to their normal lives now. So are they being allowed out more? Uh, returning yeah, to normal? yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's that been like? How are they how are they managing? I think they're okay, but some of them have gone through a lot of difficult times. Because like one of my friends told me and he said, You have to be in the situation to know how it feels. He said, It is beyond imagine. Like the whole city is locked down. You have no idea how long this will last and how life will go on and stuff. What was what was their life like? I think it's more about like emotionally. It's like in your mind, you have no idea how long this outbreak will last and when will it get better. Because like in other aspects, life is still... You still get like a daily supplies, food or stuff, because the government has tried like really hard to make sure that's like in place. Those kind of things are in place. But it's more like in your mind, you have no idea how long this will last. That's make people scary. Is it like being a prisoner in your own home? Uh, exactly. Because uh, most of the people in Wuhan, they stayed in their home for months. Hello, I'm Tom Whipple and I'm the science editor at The Times. 
I'm one of the busiest men in the building right now. I am at the moment, yes. Taking us back to how all of this started, talk us through that moment in Wuhan where this virus suddenly becomes... What is it that happens that allows this virus to become something that can cause a global pandemic? Well, so... A lot of what we know about the virus remains supposition, but it seems a reasonable supposition now that something happened to a bat. Uh, there'd been a virus that had been quite happily living in bats, spreading through the, the bat colonies. Bats are like humans, they live in large groups, they're closely packed together. It's a great place for viruses to spread. And this virus gave them something a bit probably like a cold. It didn't kill them. Viruses don't want to kill you. They want you to sneeze and stay sneezing and stay alive. So the bats did the bats version of sneezing. And that's what this virus... They want you to sneeze so that they spread? Yeah, the, 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 it's not in the virus's interest for its host to die. It wants to spread in you and it wants to spread from you. And uh, if you're dead, it can do neither of those things. It's a really bad result. We think of viruses as malign entities, but they... they they don't care about you either way, except that how they can use you, and they cannot use you if you're dead. So the most successful viruses, uh, from the point of view of the virus, is one that keeps you alive, keeps you roaming around, shedding virus at people. So it's already happening within the bat colony. So yes, the bats have their version of bat cold, and it's a bit annoying, but not much more. And then among all of these trillions of bat colds going around, one of them reproduces and there is a slight mutation. And that's the thing that I find fascinating about all of this. In this microscopic virus, you cannot see it. You cannot, in fact, see it with most microscopes. There was the tiniest of changes, maybe even caused by a cosmic ray coming in and mutating the DNA as it reproduced. And that is now being seen in trillions, in billions wiped off world economy and in a lot of deaths. And so what happened was this mutation allowed the virus to move to another species. Probably, again, we've got a lot of probabilities, we don't know for certain, into people. And there might have been another mutation, which meant it could then travel from person to person. And that's the point at which a virus really takes off. We have a new virus that no human has ever seen. No human body has ever had a chance to become accustomed to it. And it can pass from human to human. And uh, that's the stage where this sort of oddity, this curiosity of this leaping around bat virus became something that has been is going to occupy the world for the next year. Tell me about Wuhan. It is a quite beautiful city and it's quite big. A lot of lakes, a lot of universities, so a lot of very good food. There is institute called Institute of Virology. That's the institute works like merely on uh, virus infection and the vaccine design and stuff. As Wuhan went into lockdown, scientists were hard at work producing one of the most important scientific papers of recent times. There is a paper which is titled Wuhan Seafood Market Pneumonia Virus Isolate Wuhan Who Won Complete Genome. And this was an astonishing scientific achievement. And almost all of this is just a string of what, what looks like incomprehensible letters. Uh, let's see. Hang on. Okay, so uh, T-G-A-C-A-A-T-T-C A-C-A-G-A-T-T T-T-G C-A-T-T-G-A-A-A-T-C-T-G. 
poetic, really. It is. It's inspiring stuff. It is inspiring stuff, even if it sounds like nothing to us. All of these letters, which are the genetic code of the Wuhan virus, of the coronavirus we're now dealing with, 17 years ago when SARS, uh, when the SARS epidemic began, it took months to isolate the genetics. But since then, we have had a scientific revolution in our understanding of genetics. We have sequenced the human genome, which has gone from a cost of £3 billion now to £1,000 to sequence your genome. And we've got all of this lab equipment that can find DNA and isolate it. In this case, it's RNA, which is related to DNA. So suddenly... Within days, we had the full genome of the virus. And this is significant because all a virus is is a reproduction machine. It is a package for delivering its genetic material into your cells so that it can hijack them to reproduce it. So within this genetic material is everything you need to know about this virus. It tells you where it came from and where it's going to, and it tells you how to stop it. So the instant that that genetic code dropped the instant that that paper was uploaded around the world teams began working on vaccines because they knew what they were vaccinating against this is far and away the fastest global response in so many ways that we've ever had to a virus one of the teams that picked up the code was kai's his managers were keen to find someone with the skills to begin the hunt for a vaccine. They reached me because I have a lot of practice in testing the efficacy of vaccines. So they asked me if this can be done with this virus. And after I replied, they said we should do this. When it came out, is it? did you want to start working on that immediately? Of course. Did it mean more to you because you knew people in Wuhan who were already sort of ahead of the curve who'd sort of seen how bad things could get. I feel like I'm helping them, though I'm not physically with them. At what point, because you work in a, a vaccine lab here, at what point did your lab think, stop everything you're doing, let's look at coronavirus? We didn't stop everything, though, but we have put a lot of people in this project. As soon as the sequence came out of Wuhan, people started working on it. With this kind of vaccines, that's the information you need for a vaccine to, to be developed. What's remarkable is that over the last week, Kai's lab has had a breakthrough. We had some samples from the mice and we tested the samples and we got some really exciting preliminary data. It's only quite preliminary though, but we had some like uh, promising data. We inject the vaccines into mice and we got some good response, even only at, like, at the very early stage after the vaccine injection. You think it can be done in a year? Uh, this hasn't been done previously, but this is the plan, and for now, everything's going quite good. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So the, the principle of a vaccine hasn't changed um, since Edward Jenner first, I guess, brought it to popular attention. So uh, 200 years ago, he noticed that milkmaids didn't get smallpox. And he hypothesized that was because they got cowpox instead, which is similar, but not fatal in humans. And so he, I mean, he didn't have quite the problems with clinical trials we have nowadays. He got his gardener's eight-year-old son and he infected him with the pus from some cowpox. And then a few months later, he infected him with smallpox. And luckily for the gardener and for science, the son survived. But the idea is simple. It's you present the body with something that's safe but looks like the virus so that the body makes antibodies against it. And then when the virus turns up, voila, suddenly your body is already protected, already ready for it, and it can fight it. It's got a lot more complex in terms of the tools that we have to fight it and to make these viruses. And it's quite exciting, the technology that they're using. So. In the Jenner lab in Oxford, which was named after Edward Jenner, they've got one of the most advanced vaccines. They've taken a virus that doesn't reproduce in the human body that we know is safe, and they've used that as a template. And what they've done is they've inserted a little bit of the RNA, a little bit of the genetic code from the coronavirus into that virus. And so that virus busily makes a little bit of protein to put on the outside of it that looks like the protein that the coronavirus has on the outside of it. So then when you inject people with this safe virus, their body will recognise that little bit of protein. And when they see it in a different context on a coronavirus, they will be able to say, right, that's something I need to attack, and they'll get it. And when they're working on the protein around the virus rather than the virus itself, is, is that slightly safer because you're only injecting yourself with the... Yeah, so if you think of the protein as... Um, I guess it's kind of the house that the virus exists in. So it's inside this shell and uh, the bad bit is inside the shell. These are the bricks and the structures around it. And that is what you learn to attack. But the thing that's dangerous about it is the thing inside it. So, yes, having bits of this protein floating around you, probably absolutely fine. And so it's, it's benign and it's, it's a great way to teach your body what to look for. Other labs are looking at uh, things called RNA vaccines where you trick our own muscle cells into producing little fragments of protein, again, like the protein in the coronavirus, and again, using the um, genetic code that we've got. And then others are just trying to create uh, attenuated forms of the coronavirus that are safe to put in you so that, again, your body can be trained to look at it. And there's all of these teams that, since as soon as that paper went up, have started working on it. Kai's lab should be able to start testing in humans this summer, and the results so far look very promising. But the testing is a lengthy process. There are quite few time-consuming parts. Uh, the testing is definitely one of them because you need to go through like animal studies and then into clinical trials and like safety tests before you can actually like make it available. 
And is there a chance that you sort of, you think you've found a cure, you get through the animal testing, clinical, and then you end up back at square one again? Usually we will test quite a few candidates at the very early stage and then we just like screen them and find like one or two most promising ones and then proceed with the next stage. You said you were sort of starting to get some promising results. What stage are you at now? Are you at the animal stage? Animal stage is very early stage. And so is it sort of a, a few months of this before you move on to clinical trials? Or? We are planning to like enter clinical trials in like a later this year, maybe June, July or something. We are now still planning to do it on another animal model because like sometimes what you observed in one animal won't not necessarily be reproducible. So we wanted to test that on another one. And then we still need to do some like safety tests before we can move on to clinical trials. And when you start to see results like that, how long does it usually take from that stage to get to a final vaccine? Ooh, that takes like way much longer. Like traditionally, it takes more like maybe about 10 years or maybe longer to have a vaccine ready for the market. And we were trying to push it like shorter, which might be at least a year or so. This hasn't been like done previously. We cannot guarantee yet. This is what we're trying to do now. I think it might be possible. This does seem like a real breakthrough, but Imperial College has released a statement saying the next stage of testing can only happen if the government awards them a new funding grant urgently. How long does it normally take to come up with a vaccine for any given virus? So for Ebola, it took about 15 years to come up with a vaccine. That would be considered a perfectly reasonable length of time, if, if a bit rapid. If a bit rapid? Yeah, so it's, it's a long process. Now, what's happened with coronavirus has been astonishing. The science part of this has been compressed to months. We are already at the stage where some of these vaccines are going into clinical trials. The problem is you cannot compress the clinical trials bit. This is when you're testing it in humans. And you have to, at the most basic level, you have to wait to see if the humans respond. And so the first phase of trials in humans, you'll inject it into a few dozen and you'll look to see if they survive. Um, they should. There's been animal testing. It, it shouldn't be too dangerous. You look for any side effects. And you look to see if their body has made the antibodies you want it to make. And if you get through that, you go into phase two, which is when you start seeing if it works. And that's when you'll get a few hundred people probably in an area that's under infection already. And you immunise them with the vaccine. And then you wait to see if the vaccine works, if, if they're less likely to be infected than people who've been given a placebo version of it. And then if that works, and that's going to be in probably six months, you can then start doing it at scale in a few thousand people in exactly the same way to prove that it's safe and effective at scale. And only then is this something that's going to be licensed to be used. And then we've got the problem, can we manufacture this at scale? Can we make a few hundred million of these? So we are not going to have it this winter, obviously. We're not going to have it next winter, probably. Hopefully by the winter afterwards, we might have a vaccine. Really? You think it'll take until 2022? I think certainly. We may get it in late 2021, but it's the winter you want it for. And uh, I think it'll be winter 2022 before we've got something at scale we can use. There is obviously a real urgency behind all of this. Donald Trump has said he thinks there'll be a vaccine in two months. What do you think? I wish Donald Trump is right, but 
at the moment, I don't think we will be able to do that in that short time. <laughs> Is it possible that anybody in the world would be able to come up with a vaccine in two months? You might need to ask him. Uh, so, in my knowledge, no. <laughs> what do you think is more realistic? When can we expect to be able to get a vaccine here over the counter? I think it would be at least a year from now. What other viruses have you worked on? I have worked on quite a few. I studied my PhD with HIV and then uh, with herpes, influenza, rabies and now the coronavirus. How does this compare to the others? Every virus is different. For this new coronavirus, currently there is only one strain. So if it was to, if, it, if we were to have another outbreak in a year's time, mm-hmm. chances are your vaccine, if you had one by then, would be able to do the job? Probably, yeah, very likely. What do your friends in Wuhan say when they knowing that you're working on a vaccine for... Oh, they are, like most of them are very, very thrilled because they say, oh, you should work faster, we need you now. But I think most of them, like especially for I mean, my... no pressure. <laughs> I mean, especially for my friends who work in this field, they know it won't be that fast. They were just like joking to light the mood, probably. They understand. Yeah, they understand that it takes, yeah, it takes a long time. If the vaccine won't arrive for another year or two, then what's the point of it? I mean, this is quite a good question. One answer is that pandemics do sometimes take longer. They can, there can be several waves. There were several waves with the 1918 Spanish flu. Another answer is if this does end up being a seasonal problem, if it ends up becoming endemic and just part of our lives, then we'll need a vaccine. When we get a vaccine, will it be that once you're vaccinated, you never get coronavirus? Or is it a bit like flu where you have to get a new vaccine every year because it's mutated a bit, it's uh, adapted? Probably. At the moment, we don't understand loads of things about the virus but it seems plausible that that you will not be immune for life um that this is something that you will probably be able to get twice in some forms um but it might be a while you might have months years when you can't be reinfected does this mean coronavirus is something we're going to have to get used to as a recurring phenomenon is this coming back year after year um, the honest answer is people don't know um you know sometimes these things disappear sars disappeared I think more and more people are thinking this is the characteristics of something that's become part of our seasonal flu, seasonal colds and a circulating virus. But we we don't know at this stage. Does it add to your your own personal desire to get a solution, knowing how widespread it is and knowing that you've got friends all over the world who've been affected by it? I really, like, very, like, enthusiastic about this project i really wanted to get things like done as soon as possible because this is like a very like meaningful project at the moment i think how does your family feel about it they just like they feel proud of me they say oh you will be the hero (laughs) although we don't know if this will actually like be successful because like in science you need to test a lot of things I think worldwide, there are a few groups that have been working on these new coronavirus vaccines. I don't think we expect everybody to be successful. Like one or more of us be successful would be enough. Is there a sense of competition? In science, it's not actually always like a one-man job. We seem to work independently. We still need a lot of collaborations with each other. I think it's not a competition between each other. It's more like a competition with the virus and with the outbreak. 
One of the things we we heard a bit about here in London when the news first broke about coronavirus was a really odd phenomenon where on tubes and things, people, you know, of Chinese descent, people, you know, were being treated differently. Did you, you know, people were just anxious, were sort of standing back a bit. Did you ever experience anything like that? I mostly read those on the news, but personally I did had like a similar situation, but I'm not really sure if if it's about this virus. I was waiting for a lift from the fourth floor to the basement and there was a guy coming down from the fifth floor. I think he meant to go to ground floor because the ground floor button was pressed. But the second I walked into the lift, he stormed out and took the stairs. I'm not sure if it's about the virus or not, but this is like the something I experienced during this uh, time. Was this at work? Yeah. At work in a lab where they know that you're working on a vaccine. I'm not sure who that is. He might not work in a similar area, though, because it's a really big university. Yeah. But somebody actually got out of a lift. Yeah. How did that feel? I actually, personally, I I was fine, and at least uh, he was not like physical. But I feel a bit weird, though. It's like. I mean, like the virus don't infect only Chinese, they infect everyone. (laughs) You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Dr. Kai Hu and the Times science editor, Tom Whipple. You can read more of Tom's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers were James Shield, Asia Fuchs, Elizabeth Nakano and Will Rowe. The executive producer is Leo Hornack, and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review. You can subscribe now so that you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. See you tomorrow. <laughs>